and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Kev Koser. Say hi, Kev. Hi. Ready to return to the world of the fourth Doctor this week? You shouldn't give me a prompt like that. I do a half-improvised attempt at a joke, but I can't even mess with anything for this week, which is going to tell you a lot about the kind of stories we're dealing with. Yeah, they're a puzzling bunch this week. But uh, just to clarify, this week we are going to be covering two of the Fourth Doctor stories in the third season of the Tom Baker box sets, or rather their releases. And that means we're going to be covering Destroy the Infinite and The Abandoned. So, Kev, do you want to give us a, a quick summary of these and then we can get into them? Sure. Destroy the Infinite is the first encounter of the Doctor with recurring big Finnish villains, the Eminence, who are these sort of gaseous entities who possess-slash-brainwash people into becoming their soldiers, and they're building a giant warship called the Infinite, and the Doctor and Leela help out an Earth Resistance crew to blow it up, essentially. <laughs> Very straightforward there. Uh, the Abandoned is quite the opposite of straightforward. It involves the Doctor and Leela discovering a time lady who's been imprisoned in the Doctor's TARDIS for who knows how long, since before the Doctor stole it. And she and her sort of three creations, who are also imaginary friends of the three principal characters, uh, basically sort of run havoc throughout the TARDIS until the time Lady Mariana has to sort of seal herself and them away in order to stop everything from falling apart. And there's something about a point of stillness. And I'm going to be honest, this is going to be hard for me to get through because I understood very little about the story. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. All right. Uh, worth mentioning before we get started, uh, Destroy the Infinite is sort of, I guess I'll explain why I decided to cover it. Uh, the Eminence are presence in Big Finish going forward. And even if there wasn't first appearance in release order, this was the first Eminence story written and the first to take place chronologically in Doctor Who timeline. So sort of a natural launching point before we say goodbye this season in general. And The Abandoned was suggested to us by Twitter user at gmodfan3. And I thank you for that, because otherwise we would have just been abandoning this season of Fourth Doctor Stories, only covering two. And I mean, I'm glad you suggested The Abandoned, because it really is like an interesting story. Easily the best, and it's the best because it is easily the most interesting of the before we've sampled from the season so far. Oh yeah, it's by far and away the most challenging of them, I think. But let's um, let's start off with the rather nomically titled Destroy the Infinite. And um, I have to say, I just straight off the back find this to be pretty disappointing. Uh, it's not bad as such, but it feels very sort of flat. And like that title, just starting with that, Destroy the Infinite, that sounds like it's going to really kind of punch up and it's going to be something exciting and dramatic and it's just like we need to blow up a spaceship that's all it kind of amounts to and that's it's two episodes of the doctor and leela blowing up a spaceship that's all it comes down to and that can't help but feel a little bit uh disappointing have have you listened to any of the other stories featuring the eminence i have not uh i'm when i started some big finish i tried going in a roughly chronological order and now we've started the podcast we're also going in a roughly chronological order with steps out here and there so yeah, I haven't really gotten to them yet to say. Well, I, I don't want to taint your appreciation or otherwise of the eminence, but uh, well, you could probably guess where this is going, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think the eminence is a very impressive enemy. It's such a kind of 
lazy kind of Star Trek cliche of a, of a sort of gaseous monster that can take you over. And, and it just gives Tom Baker the excuse to not really have to give a performance much in this episode. He can just turn up and sort of speak very flatly for the most part. Um, and then it's all fine in the end. And that's it. It's, it's a very flat story. Maybe I'm doing it an injustice. How did you find it? No, it is a very flat story. It uh, doesn't really excite much at all. You know, it's sort of interesting. I, I sort of pulled this up in my audiobook app, and it lists the length of an hour, 15 minutes. And I mean, I know they do like sort of previews or behind-the-scenes stuff at the end of most of these, but I'm still like, here we go, bracing for a long story. And then the first episode ends at like the 20-minute mark, maybe 22-minute mark. And it almost made me think that this was going to be a three-part story, which they've done before on some of their one-disc releases, three short parts. And that makes sense because that first part, it's a very, it's so introductory, not much happens. The Doctor and Leela just sort of run around on a planet, meet some rebels, and then they're separated. And then I was listening to that second story and was like, okay, the Doctor's possessed. That second cliffhanger is coming any time now. And it just kept going and going and then wraps itself up so quickly. It really took me by surprise. Not that I guess I necessarily wanted more, but it is unusual that that second part is, I believe, like a solid 30 minutes, maybe a little even longer. And it then also, it just doesn't feel structured right. It feels very lopsided in that first episode being very sort of slow to introduce you to a lot of sort of world-building story plays and elements. And the second just sort of rushing through a very uh, quick conclusion that just gets summed up like, basically the snap of the doctor's fingers he's just able to uh not even outwit them just pull like a trick out of his hat and leave and they're all dead it's very confusing how quickly the story wraps up i can't believe that this is something that we still have to say i mean this was uh released in 2014 and this could have been a comment that we 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 could have come up with had been been reviewing doctor who contemporaneously in 1964 but if you've only got a two-part story you can't have the cliffhanger or the whole of the first episode basically just being the doctor plus companion getting to the plot you don't have enough space to then do anything with it and all the doctor and Leela do in that first episode is kind of like run from sort of one location to the other and they're not even very interesting locations we get like a cave wow definitely never seen that in doctor who before and you know it's just one of those things it's like you cannot structure your story that way you've only got two episodes and even if it is lopsided which it definitely is you're quite right to point out that the the first episode is is noticeably shorter than the second one which does give it that slightly lopsided feel but it's still just wasting that first episode getting the doctor and leela to the point where they're actually in the story in the plot and that just doesn't work you can't do that with i mean you can do it with if you've got a four-parter or or longer but with a two-parter there's just no way you can make that land it's really uh, frustrating that Nicholas Briggs, of all people, hasn't learned this lesson yet. This is one of three stories he's written for this season, and we haven't covered Zygon Hunt, but his reputation is not that great. And uh, the evil one we've already covered and didn't have a high opinion of that either. And so I don't know if he was just being stretched thin, but it just it does feel like his stories are very straightforward Doctor Who in just sort of paint-by-numbers way. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the thing is, is that with, I mean, there's quite a talented cast here. I know uh, Michael Fenton-Stevers from uh, 
very old TV show now called KYTV. Um, and he's he's a, he's a good comic actor, but he's not necessarily somebody that you would invite to play it straight in this kind of way. Although I'm a, a big fan of his. I think he's a very, very sort of funny, talented guy. And like... Um, David Sibley, he's done a lot of kind of genre stuff. He's been in Blake 7 and Survivors and Target and Minder and all this kind of genre TV stuff. So he's got like a, a good solid pedigree behind him. It's not that there's a lack of talent kind of in the cast here, but they're just not being given anything particularly interesting to do. And yeah, I think you're quite right. I think either Nick Briggs was like stretched in this, this particular season or, or whatever, but he's come up with a story that doesn't feel like it's got anything to do other than sort of run around a bit. And I want to be kind of generous and sort of suggest that like, I mean, there are, are, are clearly, obviously the eminence are designed as an overarching story. So, you know, the eighth doctor gets to encounter them and the fourth doctor gets to encounter them and so on and so forth. But, um, because they don't really emerge as anything particularly distinctive, I don't... I mean, I have listened to a couple of other um, Eminence stories, uh, particularly Dark Eyes, um, and, and it's the same. They're just not... It, the Eminence just isn't something that ever manages to kind of impress. Um, that's really the fatal flaw at the centre of this story. There's just, there is no centre to this story. It's just kind of there. What's especially strange is the story of the Infinite is the first Eminence story recorded, recorded in 2012, two years before this was released. And then the other ones, the Eighth Doctor, Dark Eyes stories, and the one Sixth Doctor main range stories they also appear in, were uh, recorded in 2013 and later. And so one can assume this is also the first one written. And, I mean, no doubt uh, Briggs wrote this with the intention of this being sort of an introduction to them to sort of if not introduction to the audience, at least introduction to the Doctor, and sort of tease them out as a big villain for the big Dark Eyes range. But still, you want, like, when you compare the first appearance of a villain in this to something like Blink or the Daleks, <laughs> it really doesn't live up. It's, it's such a generic villain. The whole Breath of Forever is like, almost like a master-esque kind of brainwash thing, which we've seen time and time again in Doctor Who. And besides that, the Eminence don't do much. I mean, invincible sort of zombie warriors, they're not, you know, that's also not very new. And so you really don't know what the Eminence sort of bring to Doctor Who beyond, I guess, the one sort of quirk of them being gaseous entities as opposed to solid ones. But that doesn't impact this story at all, so... No, the only thing that impacts the story in is the method that the Doctor is able to sort of be taken over by and then use, let them use the sort of respiratory bypasses their sort of get-out-of-jail-free car. But no, I mean, it doesn't really affect anything in particular. And, um, I mean, I want to try and be generous and, and sort of suggest that there are, are sort of... Like, there's a thematic underpinning of a sort of enslavement and the way that some people would choose to enslave themselves because there are clearly some people who become an inf infinite warriors who are sort of, you know, fully embracing that side of them. And, of course, there are some people who are sort of being forced um, against their will. And particularly early on, we get little hints of that in the way um, that somebody can remember their family or, or the, you know, they have those kind of connections uh, back to what we would call the real world and, and that helping to sort of define the way that their enslavement is. But I, I don't know. It, 
I, I, I have a feeling that's what this is reaching for, but I don't really think it lands it. Um, so it just ends up being like, yeah, another race of enslaved people, another bunch of people who are being made to do things against their will, and we will take over the universe! <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of originality going on there, really. I also think even trying to read that theme into it might be giving the story too much credit, and I feel mean saying that, but uh, it definitely feels like Big Finish when they crank out these kinds of stories, are just trying to crank out, here's another exciting adventure with the Doctor. Uh, please give us money. And it really <laughs> it really does sort of disappoint because it comes to Doctor Who to experience new takes on the world and the characters, not just have the same sort of generic stuff, like, like eat the same meal that you've eaten every day now. You want to sort of experiment a bit with Doctor Who. That's sort of the appeal of it, to me at least. And yet, so it really is disappointing for Story Infinite to be introducing a new villain that is going to recur across Big Finish's ranges and be a major threat to the Doctor, and then they're just so painfully generic. Like, what does that say about what Big Finish is like thinks about Doctor Who, even, if they think that this sort of big element that introducing the Doctor Who can be so mundane? Well, absolutely. And I think you're quite right to point out that... Um... I think this. I think it's particularly actually a problem, really, with the Fourth Doctor range, is that it tends to be very samey, and I'm. I think I mentioned this before when we cover one of the uh, one of the Fourth Doctor stories. Sorry, and that the original kind of like tagline for this is like it's 1978 all over again or something like that, and that's all too true when it comes to uh, the majority of these uh, kind of Fourth Doctors, and it's sort of frustrating because. There seems to be, uh, like, Tom Baker is never bad when he's doing these. And it's delightful to hear him again with Louise Jameson. It's been simply, I, I, I adore uh, Mary Tam so, so much. I'm such a huge fan of Mary Tam. So I'm thrilled that we got another season with uh, Tom and Mary together. It's lovely to hear them being able to do all these things. But it's sort of at the expense of, of kind of pushing tom baker to do anything new with the character and that feels frustrating because i think every other doctor within the line does get to push their doctor into new territory i mean that's easiest i think with colin baker and sylvester mccoy because both of their doctors are open-ended so there's more scope there to be able to do things that um you know go sort of long ways beyond the bounds of what they had in tv but um you know peter davison gets to do it as well and you know there's just a sense that that they're able to stretch what their doctors are capable of while still remaining true to the characterizations that we're used to on the telly and that's a struggle for whatever reason for the fourth doctor range tom baker is always fine but he always turns in what what is essentially the same performance which is a slightly boggle-eyed kind of you know disbelief at the entire universe and that's fine he's good at doing that but i want to see him stretched i want to see him doing other things and finding kind of new ways of doing that and maybe i get that he's in his 80s maybe it's asking too much for somebody i don't know but you can hear louise jameson doing it you can hear the way that she's finding new angles to approach uh, Leela from, and we'll get a, a bit more of that when we get into uh, The Abandoned, I think, because Leela is much sort of more 
central to that story. But you can hear the way that she's finding new interpretations and new ways of landing similar parts of uh, the character. And I so badly want that for, for Tom Baker's Doctor. One of the great frustrations with a story like Destroy the Infinite is that we don't get it from the Doctor's side, but we also don't get it when he's given the opportunity to kind of play this kind of possessed version of the Doctor either. He gets a chance to do another character, but it just becomes very kind of sort of flat and monotone. And that, again, it, it feels like such a waste. Cosine on everything you said about Tom Baker. Yeah, I really think that he is... Phoning it is the wrong word because he's still good. I He's really giving a bad performance, but he's not giving a surprising performance, which is to your point. And that is almost more disappointing because you can see like even across like other doctors in the range like even when there are McCoy performances out there that are fundamentally bad <laughs> there are so many that are fundamentally great and like give new dimension to the character and to his own performance and you compare it with Baker who pretty much Tom Baker specifically <laughs> to turns in the same work over and over again and but it's never excellent except for a few exceptions here and there uh, to get back to a point you mentioned earlier, uh, it's like 1978 again. Even that is so misleading. Could you look at the first Doctor range on TV, and it was a wild variety of stories. You have from the Ark in Space, Genesis of the Daleks, to like Warrior's Gate and Logopolis. Like, that's such a range. I mean, even just within 1978, you have, I may be fudging the dates in this a bit, but like the Sun Makers and the Pirate Planet and Stones of Blood. But instead, their vision of 1978 is entirely rooted in Invasion of Time, I guess, because that's what every story feels like. <laughs> wow, that is, that's, a, that's a harsh criticism right there. But, I mean, you're not wrong. I, I, I kind of agree. I mean, I think part of the, the thing that is so obvious about something like Destroy the Infinite is just how many kind of cliches you can rope into one story. And, you know, yeah, we have corridors and gaseous entities and possessions and all this kind of stuff. And and it's just it's just a string of, of Doctor Who cliches and, and just like having having a bad guy that is isn't particularly interesting but appears across multiple doctors that's not enough. It's, that's not good enough. And I don't want... I, I realise I think we're probably both sounding very harsh here. This isn't a difficult story to sit through. I wasn't actively ready to kind of like throw my phone out the window in frustration when I was listening to it. It's not one of those stories. But it just... It just like every time we get a story like this, um, maybe this is a bit morbid, but every time we get a story like this, I can't help but feel But we're not going to have Tom forever. And it just, it, we, why not do something more interesting? Like, I, I haven't listened to them yet, but the fact that we have um, Fourth Doctor stories now where he's been given a completely new companion, a complete uh, police officer from the 1970s, that's an interesting thing to do with the, the Fourth Doctor. You're expanding the worlds of the Fourth Doctor. You're not doing anything to contradict what happens on TV. This could easily happen, you know, in between, say, The Deadly Assassin and, and Face of Evil, whatever there's there's always gaps you can squeeze something into and that's great that feels like something they should be doing but it also feels like something they should have done six or seven years ago when you know you want to do more challenging more interesting things 
with the range. So I'm glad that they're getting there. As I say, I haven't listened to those stories yet, so I don't know how good or bad they are. But at least that fe- at least they're taking a chance. At least it's not just the same old, same old. And and that's something to be praised uh, for for the current uh, version of the Fourth Doctor Adventures. But it just emphasizes how you kind of hollow something like Destroy the Infinite is. So I looked up that box set and because I was afraid it was the one where they brought back Sutek, which is a oh. bit of creative that de- that's not that one. That was the season before, which was a Lila season. Okay. This actually and that's actually really interesting, the season with uh, Anne Kelso's new companion. Uh there is no recurring bad guys besides the drashigs of all things. Which I, that, well, okay. I almost kind of appreciate the gung ho ness of going <laughs> for that. But that's good, though. That means that the, the, that range isn't just resting in nostalgia. Okay, Drashigs aside. That's, well, uh, that's so mean, silly, yeah. though. That I almost yeah, want to it, give him credit. It's not like Zygons. It's not Sutek. Yeah, yeah. It's not something like that. So, you know, okay, that's good. That, that Again, that feels like a positive step. I don't understand why it's taken eight or nine years to get there, but that's good. They're taking that step. And, uh, yeah, I just I, I wish they'd done it earlier. And I, I wish that we'd been given a story that was a little bit more challenging than this one at this point in, in Big Finish's history. For sure. Uh there's just one last big point I want to hit on this story, and that is mm. I was really kind of put out by the use of uh, female characters in this story. Leela feels sidelined throughout the entire story and belittled yeah. a ton, and there is between the I, 10 other characters, there is one woman, <laughs> and <laughs> she is very summarily executed uh, with about a half-hour total across the two episodes of being around. And so that is, you know, not great. And you really sort of hoped we would get a little farther than that in uh, 2014. I, I sign off on all of that. I completely agree. Yeah, well, that, let's, I guess, then leave Destroy the Infinite behind and move on to the Abandoned. And I guess my bridge point is, speaking to what you were saying before about how this is a very easy to listen to story, both of these stories are very easy to listen to both very hard to sort of retain details about Destroy the Infinite because it's painfully generic. They abandoned for quite the opposite reasons. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, this kind of also speaks a little bit. I've got, of course, I'm setting it up a bit myself, but it sort of speaks to what I was saying before, which is whatever criticisms one might have of the abandoned, you could never, ever call this a generic story. This is absolutely not. It's it's weird. It's strange. I'm hesitant to use the word surreal because I know it gets overused a lot. But it's it's a profoundly odd and, and disjointed uh, sort of uh, piece of fiction. And I really admire that about it. I, at long last, this kind of feels like where the fourth Doctor should have been you know, moving towards it. I wouldn't want every story to be like this, far from it. And I think there are plenty of um, sort of significant flaws within this story, which we'll get to. But at least, uh, just like straight off the bat, this is a challenging piece of work. It is defying expectations. It is not just yet another run-of-the-mill kind of continuity fest or sort of ticking all the familiar boxes of the Fourth Doctor Adventures. And just, yeah, just as we start, I want to get that straight out. I really admire the chances that this play takes. I definitely think it's a story that takes a lot of chances and is hamstrung by the fact that it's being made by the big finish of the 2010s, not the big finish of the 2000s. Oh, yes. Best way to sum it up. And not to say big finish can't do anything interesting anymore, but especially in the fourth Doctor Adventures, which seem to be very risk-averse. This is the riskiest story yet, and it still feels like there's a bit of a pushback 
from going full strange, full natural history of fear, uh, chimes of midnight, etc., etc., just because I don't know, does it need to have a very tidy resolution and then also tie a lot of continuity baggage onto it just to make it feel uh, more sellable? But yeah, for the swings it takes, especially that first episode, which is almost plotless, it's really impressive. Yeah, this, the first episode is particularly difficult to sort of parse out because it is just a, a series of events, but they don't appear to have any particular connection to each other. But I like it. I think it's a, a nice performance that Tom Baker is giving. It is a little bit out of his comfort zone, which is, of course, you know, what I've just been saying. But it's not, it, what it proves is that he can still do that. He isn't just giving... Um, his bog standard performance. There are elements of it, especially when um, when he's trying to avoid mentioning like the point of stillness, and he's giving it like, all that sort of oh ah, no no ah, no no ah, all that business. And there yeah. is a little you can you can see his eyes going wide and sort of bugging out, and that's fine. But um, once we get into the second episode, um, and once things start to become. Well, I don't want to say clearer. That's that'd be over overstating things. But at least once we start getting some really good interactions with uh, Mariana, then um, he comes down a level, and he's. I think it's really interesting that um, Stephanie Cole is the the kind of principal guest here because she's a very, very good actor, and to a certain extent. Um, I think Tom Baker is responding to that. I think he's upping his game, especially in that second episode. You can hear him giving a noticeably better performance. And it's because I think uh, Stephanie Cole's performance and also the script isn't pandering to him anymore. It's forcing him to actually up his game. And as a result, we get a, a much improved performance, a much more interesting performance from him, I think. And particularly in that second episode, there are a lot of flaws in it, but Tom Baker is not one of them. He really kind of starts to shine in that second episode. Oh, for sure. Tom Baker, this is a much better performance than the other three we've covered from this season. It's very keyed in, and you can tell he's having a lot of fun with uh, Leela in this episode. It really does show whenever a story emphasizes that Dr. Leela dynamic, like that's when Baker and Jameson click in the hardest because it's such a rich dynamic. And I think every writer who writes for them knows it. And it's uh, frustrating when they don't key into basically their emotions towards each other and how they feel about each other because it also brings out the best in both actors too. And you especially get it when he's trying to sort of educate her and she wants to be educated, but is just frustrated about being confused. Like that is a very sort of cute, some little scenes at the beginning. And then, yeah, you get to the end and yeah, the sort of care they have for each other really radiates throughout. Well, and speaking of the writer, we have to mention the fact that this is co-written by Louise Jemison. And, you know, I mean, it seems obvious to say that she's got a good handle on Leela's character, but it's not always true uh, that um, people who portray the character necessarily have a perfect grip on that character themselves. Anybody who's ever encountered uh, the fiction of Paul Darrow when he's writing about Avon and Blake Seven will know what I'm talking about. But, um, you know, Louise Jameson really does have such a good grasp. I like those early scenes where she's, you know... She, I mean, it's it's not that it's an unusual beat when it comes to Leela, but they're playing up that idea that she's an intelligent woman, but... She's ignorant. She does. She's just. She's not educated, and that's always a good beat for Leela to land. And Louise Jameson is very good at sort of portraying the frustrations that Leela has when when um, she's trying to pick stuff up. 
And it feels very naturalistic because lots of people do have those kind of frustrations. And, of course, she's more than talented as an actor. So she's uh, able to articulate, articulate those rather um, extremely well. I, I, I hugely admire her performance in this. And um, when we start getting into the nursery rhymes and, and Leela's sort of confusion about the old woman who lived in, in the shoe, it could come across as so kind of cliche that she, she takes such a literal approach. But that the sort of literal-minded approach that she has is kind of shot through both of these episodes and actually becomes kind of, you know, the way that her imagination functions or doesn't function is such a, a core element of what this uh, play pivots on. So it, it it's never allowed to linger on to become cliche. Instead, it becomes a kind of a driving point of, of Leela's perspective. And again, there are a lot of flaws in, in that sort of second episode, but the way that Leela is explored in the script is absolutely not one of them. And, and Louise Jameson gives a f- phenomenal performance here, I think. Said it before, we'll say it again. Louise Jameson, easy contender for one of the best actors to work with Big Finish, just because Absolutely. of the consistency of her performances and the range she gives across so many different uh, ranges is brilliant. I just want to talk about that dialogue for a little bit, like the nursery rhyme and every stuff from episode one. The impression I got, and I realize this is giving the story too much credit, but it almost seems to be trying for a Samuel Beckett-esque modernist kind of patter, which is why it's so hard to sort of sum up, because it is less like concrete things happening than move from A to B, and it is more characters sort of talking around each other and motifs and uh, recurring phrases and things like that, like the nursery rhyming coming up again and again, cockroaches coming up again and again. And these aren't really sort of concrete things that are happening to people. These are sort of hallucinations and visions they see. You have the moment where, like, the doctor, like, sees the one of the imaginary people sawing, and it turns into him sawing. And the audio medium really sort of, like, you couldn't do this without a lot of imagination in a visual medium. It's a very audio thing to sort of have these roles sort of shift around and these conversations be very elliptical. And I really, yeah, again, that's part of the ambition. I really like that it goes for that. And it made it very hard to take notes on. But it, uh, <laughs> it really made for very interesting listening in that first episode. Well, yes, and this is, I mean, we always praise stories which use the audio medium uh, in a way that you couldn't really do on TV. And things like that scene where he's sawing the hat, hat stand in two, and he's then, you know, sort of furiously upset that it's happened, but then we also realize that it was the doctor himself that was doing it. Yeah, there isn't really an easy way that you could ever sort of portray that visually, but it's very effective in the audio medium. So, you know, I'll praise both the production and the writing for being able to use it, but um, it's using the audio medium in a way that I don't no, you've ever quite managed to see before. It's not doing it in the way of something like uh, Whispers of Terror, which relies on an audio, or Ish, which relies on kind of a like, sentient word or an audio um, bad guy or whatever. It's it's doing it in a, a much more kind of subtle way. I think I think you saying that it's a sort of Sam Beckett thing, I think that's uh, obviously the writer, not the uh, Quantum Leap person. Uh, <laughs> but I think I think that's, I, I do kind of think it is suggesting that kind of thing and, and those kind of recurring motifs and the way that they develop. I, by the way, I have to say, I cannot tell you how glad I am that we get like a nursery rhyme, like the uh, old woman who lived in a shoe and not Alice in Wonderland again. Oh, I'm yeah. so relieved that we, we get to try something a bit different. Um, and yeah, it's, 
just it's really nice to see um, this kind of adventure stretch itself in in this kind of way. It's I think it's fair to say that it's it's reach is a little bit beyond its grasp. Um, and particularly that first episode is just a whole mess of stuff. Um, and I don't know that it quite coheres into what it's meant to, but I still greatly admire it for, for having a go at it. And, you know, this is a story which is bookended by, well, Destroy the Infinite, which we've just talked about. And next time out, we're um, back with the Zygons again. So it's a really, you know, interesting approach to try in sort of squeezed between two sort of uber traditional stories. And yeah, you know, all credit for, all credit for giving it a go. And if, you know, not every motif works or if not every aspect that of it lands i would much rather have an ambitious piece like this that maybe set up and go what the hell was that rather than something that's, oh god how many times have we seen this before so yeah all praise to that now i realize comparing this to one of the great playwrights is horribly unfair for a big <laughs> finished production but what this is missing as opposed to like a sam beckett play that's trying to either ape or at least is reminiscent of is things like themes and uh, <laughs> ideas and big concepts. And I, it's, not like, no, it's not like it's unfair to criticize Big Finish or for missing that, though, because we've covered some fantastic stories that have a very clear uh, handle on what they're trying to say. I mean, if you want to go specifically in this sort of kind of stories punching class, uh, edit... <laughs> If you want to compare this to something in its weight class, Natural History of Fear is another abstract story with very clear themes and things it wants to say, whereas this, it most seems to be indulging in weirdness for the sake of it. And then maybe some sort of light themage around uh, the idea of whether or not something can be sentient and have imagination. Imagination is a big running thing, I guess. But it definitely is lacking a lot of depth and insight into that theme beyond uh, just just trying to be weird. And I, I appreciate the breath of fresh air, but it does make the sh a story shortcoming to be very apparent when they have to sort of resolve itself and it becomes much more straightforward. Yeah, I, I would like to point out that um, The Abandoned is um, one hour and 17 minutes long and Waiting for Godot is about two hours, just for the sake of comparison. So um, we, ha we have a, a slight length difference, and it's fair to say that, uh, you know, with the, the more restrictive length that uh, something like a big finish play has, it's not going to quite squeeze in the same level of uh, detail that, that, that something like a Beckett play might. Uh, but it's, um, yeah, it's... Uh, something else I wanted to say. Oh yeah, that was it. <laughs> Excuse me whilst I ramble for a bit. Um, one of the things that I think um, manages to work very well here is that character of Mariana. I sort of mentioned her before. Um, uh, Stephanie Koga is such a, a great performance and like when you're comparing it to a, a Beckett play, when you've got an actor of that kind of skill and that kind of level, it, it makes a big difference to the way that something like this works and you know she's just got a weight to her performance that like the whole thing with her being trapped inside the TARDIS and and whatever I'm not a hundred percent sure about all that I must be honest it's a it feels a bit not odd exactly but it it, it feels like a setup that doesn't really f feel like it's been set up but 
when you have an actor as good as as Stephanie Cole in the role, she's able to give a kind of like a weight and authority to that piece that you can't kind of help but buy into it. And like, I, I, I don't want to overemphasize the kind of, you know, uh, comparisons to Beckett, but, you know, yeah, like she can do Beckett. You know, she's a very good actor. And that, that additional weight, it's of so much benefit to this play. If you had an actor that was uh, even slightly less good than her, I, I think you would really um, struggle to land that central role. But, but she just like nails it from the first second she's there right up until the last scene. And, and it makes all the difference to, to the way that this play comes across. Oh, yeah. Stephanie Cole is great. And she, I think, almost has the best handle on this kind of dialogue and structure just because... I mean, she just really gets into it. She just really gets really emotional talking about these very abstract things like her paintings and these nursery rhymes and this sense of imagination. And that really goes a long way in tying the story together is Cole's performance because she believes so hard in sort of Mariana's madness that it's convincing and it's affecting and it really sets the tone for the whole story. Which makes it a bit of a shame towards the end when she does become a slightly generic ranting lunatic. Um, I'm not, it's not her fault. I think the play just kind of slightly blows it when it comes to her, her characterization because it, it does kind of slightly come down to, well, I'm mad I am. And like, she's great at being able to portray that. Absolutely, she is. But at the same time, it's a bit of a shame that they couldn't have found a slightly more original thing to do with her than just, aha, I can control everything now. Oh, I've been defeated. I think that really does sum up all the problems with that second half of the play in that, like as I mentioned before, Fourth Doctor Adventure is one of the more mainstream Big Finish ranges and Big Finish 2010s in their big hot ticket uh, ranges try to keep things more sort of streamlined and simple. And so that means an ending that is very streamlined and simple and seeks to explain everything with uh, very convoluted explanations rather than indulge in more abstract mystery, which I think is the sort of story's undoing. It really has to go out of its way to explain how these are all like imaginary friends of the main characters and how this comes from the point of stillness, which is something that is never really satisfactory explained to me beyond well being i was going to ask you about that actually yeah do you, do you understand that about it being the decimal point in between two zeros that feels like a very clever turn of phrase that is that is total bs <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking I'm, the best way i can my guess is that it's like the time before the big bang so there's nothing there but it's also in between time at the same time so i guess i don't really have a guess it's very confusing and I like the idea that just talking about it sort of invoked the events of this story. And because the doctor was thinking about it and the TARDIS was thinking about it and Lulu was thinking about it, the three of them were able to sort of conjure up Mariana from inside the TARDIS's depths and also these three other nameless characters sort of bouncing around. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a shame that we don't... 
I'm not sure one, two, and three are really necessary to this play. I, I have a feeling that if we had just focused on Mariana and had a little bit more time to add a little bit more clarity, um, I think this play might have snapped into focus a little bit more. I get that they want to have like the Doctor encountering one um, sort of side of the equation whilst Leela's off sort of uh, dealing with the other one. So I, I do understand it in terms of the way that it's been scripted or the way that it's been structured. But I think um, because you've got an actor of uh, Stephanie Cole's ability um, and a character who seems to, at least in the beginning, be somebody really genuinely different, it almost feels like a waste that we have to spend time with sort of Leela's taunting. I mean, it's well done, but it's, uh, I don't know, I just, I feel that time could maybe have been spent um, slightly more productively. And the longer we get into season, uh, sorry, the longer we get into episode two, um, the more things become slight, like, like the way that Mariana is apparently responsible for the Horda, which killed Leela's father. That just feels like one contrivance too far. And there's a couple of moments which are like that. You think, okay, you've got it up to a certain point, but then you've just slightly overextended yourself and that wasn't really necessary. And yeah, like the inclusion of the Horda just, just feels like it's, it's reaching further than this play really needs to. It doesn't have to have that extra connection it doesn't have not everything has to be tied up in this kind of guardian knot of self-referential continuity it was going fine until then and so it feels like a shame when there are those sort of little missteps along the way i completely forgotten about that thing where she reveals that she's created creatures inside the point of stillness or whatever and yeah that is such a curveball and has no impact on the story and it really does. It's another thing that Big Finish is very guilty of is continuity for continuity's sake. And it really does sort of kill the vibe here just to make you think about all those things. And it really feels like a very cheap raising of the stakes that, yeah, I'm not a fan of. No, it, it's just it's just not necessary. But, you know, again, I do still greatly admire um, a lot of the ambition and some of the stuff with the painting um, and all that kind of stuff that's... I mean, it's such an intensely visual kind of thing to have in an audio medium. So that's, I quite admire the chutzpah of doing that. You know, that's quite an interesting thing to try and do. It reminded me a little bit of that, uh, that movie, um, Dreams May Come, where the whole world is constructed from paint. It's a Robin Williams movie. And it reminded me a lot of that. And that's quite an ambitious thing to try and kind of uh, get across in an audio medium. So as well as they're sort of using audio in this kind of way, like we talked before about the Doctor song and the hats then, um, the fact that it's then also trying to invoke this incredibly kind of visual metaphor in the second half and the way that the painting works and, and this kind of, again, I can't really get away from the word surrealistic, this sort of surrealistic way in which the, the sort of paintings are interacting with the real world. That's really ambitious. I, I, again, I'm not 100% sure that it completely lands it, but I hugely admire, yeah, just the chutzpah of going for it and trying to bring across that sense of sort of visual perspective in, in this kind of medium. So, you know, all praise there as well. Yeah, I think we've sort of circled on this point a lot and so they put a button on it. This is a very ambitious story. We really appreciate the ambition. It's a shame that it doesn't have much substance to its sort of ideas and is willing to go sort of the extra mile. But what it does is still a lot more interesting than uh, the other story we're covering this week. And so we really appreciate that. <laughs> 
We do. And I think you're quite right in what you said. I think it just needed one more theme or something to underpin what's going on. And this could have been absolutely stellar. But if, uh, if, you know, if we have to put up with a story which has still got range and ambition, especially in this sort of very conservative, very sort of straightforward fourth Doctor era, then it's absolutely something to be appreciated. One more thing I want to bring up just because it tickles me. Uh, Stephanie Cole's TARDIS wiki page is honor bound to bring up. She was married to Peter Burrell, who, I, unless you recognize him, he's an almost anonymous uh, British actor, except he played a draconian prince in The Frontier in Space, so he must be cataloged. And we have to mention he was married to someone who was also in Doctor Who, and she was married to someone who was also in an episode of Doctor Who. I love that thoroughness, how all actors are equal in the wiki's eyes. Well, that's absolutely fabulous, and we, we, we couldn't possibly avoid that kind of minutiae as well. You have to you have to have that level of detail. All right. Uh, with that said, that brings to a close our discussion on Destroy the Infinite and the Abandoned. Please send us an email, talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com. We have new emails this week, but we always love reading them aloud and discussing them on the podcast, so send us some if you've got things you want to discuss. You can also find us on Twitter at Talking Who to You. Another great way to reach us, as you can see, someone reaching us on there influenced what we talked about this week, and we're very thankful for that because the abandoned did give us an interesting discussion. You can also find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer. That is K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R, and you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. Well, thank you very much. And speaking of being able to influence what it is that we do, next week we are also going to be taking a recommendation. So we are going to be remaining in the present of Big Finish and we are going to be covering the brand new Missy box set. So we are going to be discussing all four of the stories which come with that. We hope you are going to join us for the madcap world of Missy. But until then, keep talking. (laughs) 